I'm Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Row. Hey, so welcome to the show. You made it to episode two. So did we. <laughs> I was about yes. to say that. Yes. <laughs> um, I hope y'all enjoyed our first episode. We're still figuring it all out. Um, so the first ones are going to be a little rump- rumpy. Rumpy. <laughs> That's Where a new did- word. I love it. Where did I get rumpy and bumpy is what you were going for. That's bumpy, yes. That's what I was doing. But uh, let's be real. My cat has had some issues this week. Um, This is the TMI part of the podcast. And all week long, I have had to look at his butt to make sure he is healthy. It's a long story. And all week long, I've been like, oh, my God, McBuff, McBuff, God, McDuff, you have a clean (laughs) rump. So that's what I've said to him every day this week. Oh, McDuff, your your rump is clean. So I've said rump a lot lately. But anyway, y'all are not here for tales yes. about my cat. Y'all are here for some uh, dead folks, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. Dead folk. <laughs> Although I'm mean, hearing was... about McD- McDuff's rump. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He has a great one. He does not like it when I look at it. He is extremely modest. So anyway, <laughs> does it weird anyone else out in the cat groups? Like when they put like stickers over the cat. Genitals, oh, I hate that. I'm like, hate that. it's a cat vagina. We'll live. <laughs> we'll survive. I'm like, it, it's oh, a cat God. butt. They're going to put your, their cat butt. You're sexualizing a cat's hoo-ha. Yeah. Like what is wrong with I don't you? Get it. I don't, I don't get it. Okay. Anyway, that was my segue for the day. I am against sexualizing cat genitals. <laughs> okay. So, agreed, agreed. Um, man, we, we went off on this one. So, <laughs> back to our cemeteries and our love for dead folks and our um, desire to tell their stories. Uh, this week's theme is mass graves. So, um, We're going to be talking about some of our favorite mass graves. That feels weird to say, like my favorite murder or something like. Most interesting to us. Bingo. There you go. Yes. (laughs) So (laughs) um, my mass grave story is pretty depressing. But you know what? What mass grave story isn't pretty depressing, I suppose. It's right there in the name. (laughs) True, true. Nothing good happens. (laughs) No, nothing good at all. Right. Um, So who wants to go first? Do we want to flip a coin or or whatever? I don't know. I'll go first. Yay, Yay! Go, Lori. Yay. So mine is interesting in the fact that it's not... A mass grave in the traditional sense, you know, like uh, when I think mass grave, I think of, you know, Nazi Germany. I think of uh, what we're going through right now with the coronavirus, where a bunch of people are being buried in the same spot at once. So that's not necessarily the case with uh, the one I'm talking about this week, but it's just such an interesting story. And there's still so much that hasn't been uncovered about what happened at this particular site. Um, So yeah, I'll hop right into it. I'm going to be talking about uh, the mass grave and cemetery at the Florida State Reform School, which has had many, many names, but it was most recently known as the Dozier School for Boys. So it opened... 
It is very depressing, very sad. It opened in January of 1900 in Mariana, Florida, with the hopes that the would be a useful tool in rehabilitating troubled youths and those who didn't have any family. Um, so it would provide them with gainful employment uh, and education, and ba basically like tools to work in a trade. Uh, but within three years of opening, uh, residents were found wearing chains as if they were actual criminals on a chain gang. Oh, no. And these are kids, like, I think the oldest was probably 16, 17. Um, so didn't get much better as the years went by. Uh, reports continue to come out that there were brutal beatings. Um, and in 1914, six boys and two staff members were killed in a fire on the campus. Oh, that's awful. Uh, yeah. And then the facility was also hit hard by the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. Uh, and 11 children died during that. Oof. So, yeah, very, very sad history before you even get to the abuse that allegedly happened there. And I say allegedly, you know, in air quotes. Um, there were two separate campuses for the white and black inmates. And kids were beaten for even the most minor infractions. Um, the book I read as I was kind of setting up on this is called The White House Boys, an American Tragedy. And it's written by a former resident named Roger Kaiser. And he recalled being beaten horrifically in the building known as the White House. Um, and it was just this white building where children were routinely beaten with a giant leather strap that was made of two pieces of leather with a piece of sheet metal sewn in between them. Oh, Jesus. So, abs yes, they would be placed on a bed, told to hold on to the, the headboards, and then they would just be beaten to within an inch of their life for, such like, stepping off the path on the way to dinner or laughing at a joke or just doing something that the supervisors thought was just inappropriate. Um so Roger Kaiser actually recalled one beating that was so bad, he was sent to the nurse where they had to peel bits of underwear of his skin with tweezers. Oh. Um, and that was really all they did. They, they, and then they would soak in Epsom salts, um, I guess, thinking that would help them. Um, but yeah. No, um, no, no. no. <laughs> Absolutely. And then there were also stories about boys being taken to a cellar that was underneath the dining hall that they referred to as the rape dungeon. Oh, um, no. Kaiser didn't really go into any details like that in his book. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know if he personally didn't experience that or didn't witness any of that. But um, from some of the articles I read, there were several accounts that that was something not uncommon to happen to, to those boys. Um, mm. And one incident that really stands out to me uh, is what I call the butter boy incident. Um, so at dinner, they would all be given a bottle of milk with a little bit of cream on top. Um, and they figured out a way to make butter from that cream. So the first boy would drink his milk down to where there was only cream left. And then they would pass that bottle along and each boy would scrape that cream off the top of their milk and they would put it in that first boy's bottle. And then once everybody had gotten the cream in there, they would shake it up to make butter to put on their bread. 
one evening a boy was was doing this and some visitors happened to walk into the cafeteria and a woman saw him shaking his hands under the table because he was shaking up the the milk to make butter and she started screaming oh my god he's masturbating oh my god and he was basically picked up and dragged out by his neck and none of the other boys ever saw him again baby so it was the assumption that spread on his bread well yeah and they had to do it underneath the debt or the table because if they got caught they would get in trouble so because any little thing and you know to be perfectly clear these stories are coming from the white boys right Uh, right. so i'm sure the black and so so you cannot imagine Exactly. Exactly. Um, so there were rumors circulated that uh, the bodies of boys who had been killed were buried in the fields where um, they planted their crops. Mm-hmm. And so so that was just kind of like the story that they would be tilled underneath every year when they would go to plant the crops to feed the kids. Um, wow. It, you know, bring, bringing it back to the White House, boys would be taken in there and no one would ever see them again. Um, and so Kaiser himself witnessed two deaths while he was at the facility. Um, he was first working in the hospital as like an assistant to the nurse and a young boy was brought in and it looked as if he had been mauled by dogs because that was another thing, uh, they had to look forward to. If any of the boys tried to escape, they would often be attacked by the dogs owned by the neighboring farmer and so so there was many there were many kids that were thought to have been mauled to death by these dogs um so he and the nurse cleaned up the boy as best as he could and he uh kaiser recalled him laying in the fetal position and just basically the boy laid there and died oh goodness Uh, uh, yeah after that incident kaiser asked to be transferred out of there because he could not handle seeing another boy die and so he was sent to the laundry department. And that, that's essentially where he was working when one evening he heard yelling outside. When he asked a supervisor what was going on, he was told, quote, another one of you little fuckers just bit the dust. Oh, God. Oh, and this was supposed to help these. I mean, these weren't criminals. These were just kids right. not having right. a great time. You know, I think he was in there because he stole a bike and was an orphan, had been abandoned oh by gosh. his family. Jesus. So most, they weren't hardened criminals. These were kids that uh, had nothing to better them. And this was where they were sent uh, when they would get in trouble wherever they were living. Uh, Kaiser was at an orphanage, which was a whole another round of abuse that he didn't even scrape the surface of in this book so it just again kids were sent here because they were viewed as troublemakers they were unwanted and this is the stuff that happened to them um so this particular incident the boy had been put in a tumble dryer after getting into a cussing match with one of the supervisors of the laundry room oh god and uh so he recalls and there are other other uh, former residents who corroborate his story that somebody was put into the tires and that person died and then they, he was buried in a shallow grave in the woods on the property. Aye, aye, aye. Um, so just, just insane. So then in 1983, a class action civil rights lawsuit was filed on behalf of the children that had spent time in that 
uh, in Florida's juvenile detention facilities to help overhaul the youth justice system. So this is when they start making reforms. Additional reforms were made in 87, um, but it wasn't until 2008 that the state actually recognized the atrocities that were committed at the Dozier School. They, they (laughs) They held a ceremony acknowledging that, you know, bad stuff went down, uh, the doors to the White House were closed to, closed forever, but it was a few more years before the school itself actually shut down. Jesus. So this place was open for 100 years? More than? Uh, yes, I believe 2011 is when it finally closed for good. Christ um, almighty. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's absolute ridiculous. So in 2008, this uh, Florida law enforcement opened an investigation into the makeshift cemetery near the grounds of the school. So this is kind of where the mass grave comes in, into yeah. play. The cemetery held more than 30 metal crosses, but there was no information or dates on the crosses. Um, the results of that investigation found that there was a limited evidence to either prove or disprove that abuse had taken place. So no charges were brought against the former staff members who are still alive. Oh Christ. Of course not. Yeah. And then from, and this is where it gets interesting. So from 2012 until 2016, anthropologists from the University of South Florida surveyed the 1,400 acre property, and they found the remains of 55 additional individuals. And many of those uh, remains had evidence of gunshot wounds and blood force trauma. Jesus. In 2019, ground... Yeah, and so in 2019, ground-penetrating radar found that there were 27 more anomalies that were potential grave sites, but the team from the school determined that those were roots of trees that had been removed years earlier. Hmm. While the investigation is considered closed, many of those men known as the White House boys still want answers. Of those 55 remains found during the investigation, Seven were positively identified using DNA, and there were 15 presumptive identifications. But again, only seven of 55 were positively identified. Um, That's crazy. Many of the survivors, the White House boys, have begged to be allowed on the property, insisting that there are more graves to be found, but their pleas have continued to be turned down. Um, the head anthropologist uh, from the university that led that uh, search said that unless evidence is brought forward, such as a specific name or a burial site where there might be more graves, no more excavating will be done. Oh. And so, yeah, that's it. That's the the last bit of information that the, the White House boys like Roger Kaiser and there's several other books that have been written. They insist that they remember seeing graves in different locations. And, you know, there's, there's gotta be some truth to it, whether it's one boy or 50 boys, it's still, it should be investigated because they need their names, especially those that have not been identified. Um, they need to have their names back and their stories need to be told because, you know, that lots of bad things happened at this school. And this is just yeah. 
a very brief overview of what information is out there. So if um, this story is of any interest to any of you, I do encourage you to check out um, Roger Kaiser's book, White House Boys and American Tragedy, or, you know, any of the other number of uh, stories that are out there about this, uh, this just tragic, um, tragic story of what these boys went through. And these boys schools, like they're a nationwide phenomenon for like a certain part of history. Um, Charles Manson was in a boys school where he was sexually assaulted and beaten by guards. Uh, Carl Panzram also survived a boys school where they essentially were just full of psychopaths, tortured and raping young men. Right. Um, There's a really good to, to, plug a podcast that I listen to called Behind the Bastards. Um, They had an episode called The War on Children. And it is a really, you know, everyone talks about kids being special and kids, everybody gets a trophy and yada, yada. (laughs) Kids were not treated like actual human beings until extremely recently. Like you could do whatever you, I mean, baby farms, um, all of that, like nobody gave a shit about kids for a very long time and especially young men. I mean, they're just, they would, you know, just absolutely torment these kids. And mm-hmm. in the case of Manson and Panzeram and probably more that we'll never know about, it's, the results are devastating. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I never want to say that, an abused child or someone who grows up in an abused home or or whatever, that's why they became a killer or that's why they became whatever. Mm -hmm. But it does play a factor. Yeah. But two, I think as a whole, as a country, this is something I've been preaching on recently, thanks to things that happened at our nation's capital on January 6th. (laughs) We, we have completely, and this is a this is a whole topic for a whole nother day. We have completely raised our young men wrong, yes, especially absolutely. young white men. Yeah, um, we have. I, I don't. I'm not a parent, so I shouldn't speak to it. I, I've never had that challenge in my life, but I just feel like there's got to be there's somewhere we went wrong with young white men. Yeah, and we've got to raise a generation of. M- men who don't have that entitlement and who don't have that um, anger, like men, white man's anger is so terrifying. It's that toxic masculine masculinity. It's yeah, just hundred percent. I mean, and then, you know, it affects, it affects, it has negative effects on men too, where they can't cry. They can't yeah. express emotion. They can't, yeah. you know, fucking wear pink. If you want to wear pink, baby, it's okay. You know, wear nail polish. If it makes you feel good, they won't wear a mask in a pandemic. Exactly. The not wearing a mask. Uh, some people, you know, there was a story that came out a couple of years ago that like, is it gay to recycle? And I'm like, are we having this conversation? I remember that. Yeah. Are we having this conversation? Oh yeah. We had it. It's it's insane. And, you know, I'm I'm the parent among us. And, you know, I have a five year old son and I'm trying to raise him to have an open heart to everything and everybody. And, you know, just trying to make his grandparents understand that there are certain ways and, and things I don't want you to say to him. Yeah, that were that were considered OK when I was growing up and when right. we were growing up. But, you know, I want my son to know that 
he can express himself however he wants. And right. if he wants a girl toy or if he wants to wear pink, that's fine with me. It's, right, it's right. you know, he, he needs to be his own person and he needs to be aware that he is, you know, uh, I'll admit it. He, he is l- lucky and he, he has, how am I trying to phrase this? You know, he is going to grow up a white boy. Right. There's an inherent privilege. Right, right. He is going to have privilege, and I want him to understand that, and I want him to, you know, be a fighter for others that are underserved and those that aren't privileged like him. And so I'm I'm hoping to bring him up that way, and, you know, it's just I hope others do the same, and it's it's unfortunate, especially where we're from, that that's just not how boys are raised and not how people think you should – be and it's just yeah. it's bullshit yep 100 percent. that is cemetery rose stance on toxic masculinity absolutely it's bullshit. that's right <laughs> put it on a t-shirt ladies and yes gentlemen. yes <laughs> um hannah i sort of could make a segue from hers to mine but you yeah, may be ahead. able to do the same oh no, no, okay you sure no i'm sure okay if Unless- you want to go next you can go next no, I don't think clowns are as masculine as whatever it is you're <laughs> going to be talking about. Well, though, mine actually, mine though the gender. ending arc of mine, mine going last, will bow tie this nicely. Okay, great. Um, mine is not generally <laughs> okay. a a gendered story, but um, the cemetery that I'm going to talk about has a. Um, section to it that is very similar to what Lori's talking about. Um, I'm going to be, again, talking about Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis. Um, I don't know if if you can say you have a home cemetery, but I consider that my home cemetery like your home church, <laughs> like because that's where I volunteer. And so um, I, I know so much about it. I've given tours there. I clean stones there. Um, so I know a lot about it. And And what reminded me so much of your story, Lori, is they have graves there that are unmarked. They are not mass graves, but they're very similar in that they are children who were under Georgia Tan's care, and I use care in air quotes. Um, the very, very brief overview of that story is... She is a whole episode all on her own. <laughs> I I hope... Satan himself is tending to her because (laughs) they don't, they do not make women this horrific every day. She um, was in the, basically the black market of children. She would um, either convince poor women in town to give them their children. And she would be like, oh, I'll take care of it while you go make some money for your family. They'd never see their kid again. Or if she saw a cute kid on the street, she'd just go snatch it up. And, and she would adopt these children out across the country. I mean, even um, the actress um, Joan Crawford got her twin daughters from Georgia. Um, oh, wow. And this was all happening out of Memphis. It was a whole citywide known ring. Um, the cops helped her do it. It, it. It's so terrible. And there is a section at Elmwood dedicated to those kids that died in her, again, quote-unquote, care. She renamed them, didn't even give them names worth anything basically john doe and that definitely plugs into Lori's about you know this country yes. just not giving a shit about right. kids for the longest 100 percent. 
a hundred percent. And um, so it reminds me of that. That's a story that we will get into later. They they do have a monument up for those children because um, they don't have their individual headstones. Um, right. Across the street, literally across the street from that section at Elmwood is no man's land. And that is a grave. It's a mass grave for victims of yellow fever. So friends, let's go back to Memphis in 1870. So Memphis started on the river, right? Everything sort of grew out of the river, um, including yellow fever, because it came <laughs> up from New Orleans. Um, uh, I will say this, and of course we will list our sources for each of these, but there is a book called The American Plague, The Untold Story of Yellow Fever, The the Epidemic That Shaped Our History by Molly Caldwell Crosby. She is a Memphis author. Um, it, it's wonderful, and I recommend you you pick that up if you are interested in this topic. A lot of this came from, from her, not entirely. Some of it's just my own research and what I know given tours at Elmwood. <laughs> and me asking them a lot of questions. <laughs> anyway, Memphis. 1870, the population was 40,000, nearly double that of Atlanta and Nashville. So Memphis was actually really big. Um, Only New Orleans was actually bigger. And actually what I think is fascinating was Memphis actually also had a um, carnival, a a Mardi Gras, so big that even the folks from New Orleans would travel up to Memphis and see how they're doing it to like steal ideas. If you have Um, an hour, get my dad talking about how Mardi Gras started in Memphis and he will tell you all about it. Yeah. And then we'll have to do that. um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We could. Um, What I love is that... um, it, I mean, it rivaled New Orleans. And actually, in 1878, which was the year that the fever was at its worst, um, of course, it took place in the spring, and the um, yellow fever didn't really hit till like, August, September of that year. Um, in the spring of 1878, the fountain in Memphis's Court Square flowed with champagne. Like, that's how big it was. That's how fancy it was. Like, I love that. Like, I wish I could see Memphis in that. However, at the same time, I don't either because Memphis being in the South in 1870s, we don't have really good sanitation. It was disgusting. Um, There's just, it was very swampy. There are mosquitoes everywhere. It was just not a very clean city. And that's sort of how we get yellow fever. We know now yellow fever um, comes from mosquitoes. It was not contagious. You you picked it up from a mosquito that bit you. And it started truly in Africa um, and came over here because we, as god-awful, horrible human beings, decided owning other people was a good idea. And we could go take them from where they were and just bring them over here. (laughs) What sense does that make? Okay. Anyway, basically it came up through like Cuba and, and all of that and coming up through the Gulf Coast, through New Orleans, through the rest of the country, through the Mississippi River. Um, and yellow fever causes really bad high fevers, chills, body aches, but in the really serious cases, which you had back then, because you know, it's the early days of a lot of medicinal stuff. You know, they don't know everything the way we know it now, not knocking them. They did the best they could, but it would cause organ failure, bleeding, and then death. Um, You, your skin would go yellow. You would um, vomit this black bile. Like it was very, very gross. Um, Bodies of the freshly... (laughs) 
Oh, it's horrible. It is the worst. Like to read about, and I'm trying to spare y'all a lot of the details. To read about it, it's horrific. These people suffered when they died. They absolutely suffered. Um, bodies of the freshly dead would have temperatures of 110 degrees. So their blood would Jesus. Their blood would steam and their organs felt like they were in boiling water because they practically were, I mean, for all intents and purposes, um, because it did cause bleeding. If you were pregnant, you would spontaneously miscarry. Um, they actually, one doctor erroneously, but I see how he's saying, said that women who were past childbearing years were actually the um, yellow fever would make them menstruate again and that wasn't the case it was just it was just they were hemorrhage yeah they were hemorrhaging oh, so badly yeah uh-huh. so it was really really bad Ooh. and because the fever caused a mental decline you also had people if their fever was high enough they would i hate to say the word crazy but they they right. had a mental break and they you go into psychosis yeah you do and so people were just irritable some people went they would run through the streets with yellow eyes and they'd be screaming. They would have to be held down. It was really horrific. Um, much like today with COVID, President Rutherford B. Hayes kept getting <laughs> word about how bad it is in the Mississippi Valley. Because as I said, it came up from New Orleans and went up through all of these states. There were um, 200 communities in 11 states that were hit by the fever. And the total death toll, when it's all said and done, was 20,000 lives with 200 million in financial losses. And when he heard specifically about Memphis, he said their pleas for help were greatly exaggerated. Those are his words. (laughs) Jesus Christ. They have yellow people boiling alive, but Jesus Christ. Yeah, so that's exactly what I think about Rutherford B. Hayes. Mm-hmm. Um, never held a grudge against the man until I read this book. And then I'm like, well, I know who's the second worst president of all time. I don't know that he's really the second worst, but <laughs> he can suck at a least. one. <laughs> yeah, he's he's up there. I'm like, because I, I mean, I think I mentioned this a lot in the last episode. My dad died from COVID. So I take a lot of the medical stuff now very seriously and very personally. And so I'm like, oh, so you let people die. Great. Okay. Um, the human, the toll on life, the, uh, I'm not saying that right. <laughs> the, in Memphis, more people died of yellow fever than the Chicago fire, San Francisco earthquake, and Johnstown flood combined. Wow. In oh 18, my. like there were several outbreaks. 1873 was the first bad one. The worst was 1878, which is what I'm focusing on. And that bled into 1879. Um, and I believe it's only in 1878 and maybe it's 1878 going to 1879, over 5,000 lives were lost in Memphis. And what's so bad about that is, is that over half the population that could leave Memphis left. We lost so many of our citizens to Nashville and to other big cities. And so a third of the population that remained that stayed back, the the poor folks, let's be real. A third of them died, the, the, of a third of the population. It was just insane. So, um, so yeah, 1878 was the worst year. It spread up and down the Mississippi and Ohio Valley. Memphis was hit the hardest. The first case in 1878 was in August, and by mid-September, there were 200 deaths a day. 
at the height of the epidemic, Elmwood, <clears throat> excuse me, Elmwood was handling an average of 50 burials a day. The gravediggers couldn't keep up with how many dead were coming in, so they dug these trenches for the mass graves. Um, there are about 2,500 fever victims buried at Elmwood. That's not everyone in no man's land. That is everyone in, out of the whole population of the cemetery. They have about 80,000 people buried at Elmwood as of today. And there are 2,500 that are fever victims. So some of them have their own graves. But if you didn't have family left to bury you because your whole family had died out, because your whole family had left, for whatever reason, you were just a body and they had to put you somewhere, they put you in no man's land. Um, so there are around 1,500 yellow fever victims in no man's land. Um, what I found in some research was it says they're unidentified. When I talked to the folks at the cemetery, they said they, they have names of the people who were there. I was not sure exactly if they could say point to this certain plot of land and say this is so-and-so but they do have their names I will say that um it's good at least yeah for sure um and I mean I've been through their a lot of their burial records and I mean going they they do also have like an, an entire section of enslaved people um but they're not a mass grave either um mm -hmm. and they don't know their names because, Jeez. of course, back then, you know, right. God forbid we, we treat people as if they are human beings. Um, I love how every time I go to get mad about something, I start painting a nail. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. That's we all doing. cope. We all I get mad. I get mad. Multitasking. Mad. <laughs> yes. Multitasking at its best. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, it was really horrible. The, the cemetery has a bell that they ring. Um, every time a funeral procession comes through the cemetery. And they said back then it rang constantly. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, they said to let people know that someone was ill, they would put a yellow piece of cardboard um, up in like over the doorways of people who had yellow fever. But they eventually replaced the yellow with black and they would use chalk to say coffin needed. And then the dimensions of the size of the people, oh. whether it's a man, woman, or child. So anyway, again, because so many people left the city, you, you may not have anyone to report your body. Your body may be there for a minute. Right. So they had a citizens relief committee arranged with, um, they would arrange burial patrols. And they would locate bodies by report. Like if somebody said, hey, at so-and-so Poplar Street, there's a dead body. Um, they would go, you know, retrieve the body or they would look for them by smell, which I guess is not oh. looking for them. I guess that's stench, that right. smell or even the flight of buzzards, because mm. that clearly yeah. is a sign of death. Um, and in hospitals, which I think were probably so full that it, it's like now, good luck in, getting in. Um, patients died so quickly that as many as 30 new corpses would be piled in the dead house before the undertaker could even return from the cemetery. Jeez. So you just had that many people dying that often. And at Elmwood, um, according to um, the book by Miss Crosby, um, it says that Elmwood's burial grounds, this is such an important word and such a disturbing word. The grounds at Elmwood were bloated 
with shallow graves, some only 16 inches beneath the surface. I think they were digging only what they had to. I think they were so overwhelmed. Oh, my God bless. Yeah. So um, on more than one occasion, a knock was heard before the lid was screwed tight or the coffin lowered, and the patient thought to be dead called out from the inside. Oh, no, 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 no. Because they were so... (laughs) <laughs> delirious and out of it with fever. They just right. they were dead and they, they weren't. Oh. Um, and of course, well, that's going to be earlier, my nightwear for the next week. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what. Yes. I, COVID is horrible and, and I don't wish it on anybody. Um, I've seen its effects firsthand and it is a nightmare. But yellow fever is, it's disturbing. It is yeah. scary. That's awful. It's, it's true suffering, true suffering. Um, mm-hmm. So as I said earlier, they didn't know what caused bad fever. They thought it was bad air. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't my asthma theory. Exactly. That's exactly it. Um, in 1901, Dr. Walter Reed confirmed the yellow fever was spread by mosquitoes while working in Cuba. There are, there are vaccinations, but there's still no cure. So don't go get yellow fever folks you don't want it you also don't want covid wear a mask um the book that i mentioned earlier the american plague the first half is dedicated to memphis especially in 1878 the second half is dedicated to walter reed and his research in cuba um very interesting i have a whole new respect for dr walter reed um so i kind of love hearing his name when they say they're at the walter reed hospital i'm like oh i know that guy i know what he did so there is a monument um Okay, so let me set the scene a bit. When you're going into Elmwood, if you go to your left, you you can't miss no man's land. It's a huge, you know, couple of acres of land. And there is one main monument that you see as soon as you sort of get to it, but then there's another one further back in sort of the center. I'll get to that first one that you see in just a second, but the main um, no man's land marker, which they put up in 1985, reads... In four public lots known collectively as no man's land lie the remains of at least 1,400 victims of the great yellow fever epidemics of 1873, 1878, and 1879. Memphis lost over 8,500 citizens to the disease and 2,500 of these rest at Elmwood. At the peak of these outbreaks, Elmwood was required to handle over 50 burials a day. Due to the sickness and labor shortages, many bodies were piled above the ground awaiting arrival. Persons from all levels of society were interred in these trenches in an area formerly preserved for paupers and unknowns. By 1878, half of Memphis' 50,000 citizens fled the city. Yellow fever struck 90% of the remaining population, killing 5,100. The epidemic so decimated its population that Memphis became bankrupt in 1879 and was declared a taxing district of Nashville. And Memphis actually didn't become a city again. I have the date. What did I do with it? I think it's 1893. And for those not familiar with Tennessee's geography, Nashville and Memphis are nowhere near each other. (laughs) And they don't like each other. Yes. (laughs) I mean, let's just put it out there. It's a good three and a half, four hour drive yeah, to get to Nashville. Right. Yeah. So that's just wild to me that Memphis wasn't even a city for right. a good chunk of just, time. Just think about wh- how things would be different in Memphis today had this not epidemic happened. not hit us. Yeah. Yes. It, it, we would be a completely different city. 
We totally. And, you know, that's one thing that we have talked about a lot um, was in, in giving tours at Elmwood is just how it's something that we still deal with today. We don't think we do, but we do. Oh, yeah. It's still Absolutely. And it, it's just fascinating to me. And I think. Well, and Memphis's reputation be- even now, I mean, even you 200 years, 100 years later, people still think of Memphis as sketchy and poor and, well, you know, I mean, it is all of those things, no, but it's I'm also, saying, it's a great, it's because of this, right? Exactly. It's because it's it got, you know, they had champagne in the fountains one year and then a disease rolls through and it just, and it doesn't, it's not even a city it. the next year. Right. Right. It's Decimated literally it. no longer a city. Um, and they actually stopped having um, Mardi Gras. I think about the time that the city actually came back, so which is weird. I, I meant to look up those dates, and I swear I did. I just don't know where they are. It's probably um, when the Baptists came back. You know they don't know. <laughs> probably. I'm not talking about Baptists, but I kind of am too. Um, <laughs> there are several really fascinating people connected to and victims of the yellow fever epidemic in Memphis that I would love to talk about, but I want to give them more of their own time and space at a later date. Um, Some people who were very, very courageous, um, who stayed behind whenever everyone else fled, they paid for it with their lives, but they did some really um, amazing work. So I'm going to give them their due later. I want to focus on the unknowns. But as I said, when you do as you're coming up to the section of no man's land, you do see one uh, monument that has a name on it. And that's for Maddie Stevenson. And she's sort of considered like the guardian angel of no man's land. So Maddie Stevenson, uh, this happened in 1873 when the first epidemic was um, happening and so bad. Um, She was from up North. I can't remember exactly where, but she was a Yankee. God bless her. But her fiancé left her for another woman. I think he is a piece of trash, whoever he is. So being, um, I want to say she was left at the altar. I'm not sure if that's true, but I know um, that, yeah, she got left. And she was like, what am I going to do with my life? I thought I was going to marry this Well, I hope him and Georgia Tan are having a wonderful time together. I'm sure they are. (laughs) um, Because this lady is most definitely in heaven. So she um, comes to Memphis to help out during the yellow fever epidemic of 1873 because, I mean, she's like, what else can I do? And I'm like, oh, my God, I love this woman who is so giving in her time of heartbreak, you know. So she comes to Memphis, volunteers with the Howard Association. She caught yellow fever and died within a week of being in Memphis. Oh, my God. Yes. Most of the people who, like, traveled from elsewhere – I swear, it seems like every story is like they lived maybe two weeks and then they they just didn't have the immunity. Horrible. Yeah. No, and then too, I mean, Memphis was so eat up with mosquitoes. Right. Like it still is. Like, oh my God. (laughs) During her short time, she endeared herself to Memphians so much they held a public fund drive to raise money for her monument at Elmwood. Elmwood donated the plot and the citizens paid for her monument to be erected in her honor. It is stunning. It is a beautiful monument. Um, and there are several um, symbols because, you know, the Victorians and all that, they love to to spice things up on their monuments. Um, there's a beautiful angel, which, of course, is religious. There's some ivy, which symbolizes strength, constancy, and it, 
constancy and eternal life. There's a scroll that symbolizes eternal life and that there was life before her and there will be life after her. And there's a beautiful lily, one of my favorite cemetery symbols. And of course, that stands for purity and virtue. Um, So that is my story of Elmwood. I would like to also, though, call out another um, very quick yellow fever mass grave that I've been to. And I love its story because it's a little spooky. I don't love its story because I don't want anyone suffering from a disease and ending up in a mass grave. But um, one of my favorite cemeteries in Savannah, Georgia is Colonial Park Cemetery. And if you've been in there, you've no doubt seen they have a ton of historical markers in there because Everyone in there has an amazing story, but they do have a a historical marker for the yellow fever epidemic victims and for the mass grave. And it says, in this cemetery, many victims of the great yellow fever epidemic of 1820 were buried. Nearly 700 Savannians died that year, including two local physicians who lost their lives caring for the stricken. Several epidemics followed. In 1854, the Savannah Benevolence Association was organized to aid with the families of the fever victims. What I want to go back and point out, and this is, I have no sources for this, okay? I was told this by a tour guide. It's probably not true. Nearly 700 Savannians died that year and are buried at um, Colonial Park. A tour guide told me, this has got to be fake, that the true number was 666, but they wouldn't put 666 in a cemetery, so they say nearly 700. No, that that sounds, that sounds, it's gotta be true. That sounds so correct. (laughs) (laughs) Like, part of me is like, I I get it. I see the nearly 700. I see what they did there. Having lived in the South almost 40 years. Yes. Yes. There's no way it was 666 exactly, but maybe it was, but I don't, I also, I've also done enough research into Savannah history to know that a lot of those, not all the tour guides, but there are several of them who definitely embellish have a little fun um they do and I don't blame (laughs) them I've I've always wanted to be a ghost tour guide um but I don't want to tell anyone a lie either so um anyway that's mass graves please do not get yellow fever folks please don't get COVID please wear your mask and social distance I don't care if you get vaccinated please continue to do that and that's my spiel I love it. Um, Just a quick thing to say. I got a quick. Well, before we go on, I have a quick question for you, Sheena. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Um, Do you know? Did you happen to have the like percentage of how many people actually died who got yellow fever, or what was the percentage? Do you know? Off the top of my head, or the survival rate. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I don't think it was high because yeah, doesn't sound like it. Yeah. No, it wasn't. I remember I used to have the numbers in my head and I can't remember them off the top of my head right now, but it was something like out of, I I may be making this up entirely, but I want to say it was like 50,000 people fled. So there were about like 20, 25 people left, 25,000 people left. And of those 17,000, had yellow fever and i i don't remember if that's the number that died it can't be it can't be if it was that if it was the 
if we have the 5,100, which is all of the total from 73, 78, and 79. Okay. So I did a quick Goog. I said over... <laughs> a quick Goog. A quick Goog. Over 90% of whites who contracted yellow... F- okay. So the of the white people that remained in Memphis, 90% contracted yellow fever. And yes. 70% of those that contracted it died. Right. Jesus. However, interestingly, oh. according to TennesseeEncyclopedia.net, blacks contracted <laughs> the fever in large numbers, but only 7% of the infected died. I know why. I know oh, why. It's sickle because... cell, right? It's sickle cell. It's oh, like... I don't know about that. Okay. Um, <laughs> there I is something it. to do with sickle cell and immunity to yellow fever that's based in Africa. Yes, because they were, because either they had come from Africa or their ancestors had, they had an immunity because they had gotten it over there and it wasn't quite as bad on their system as it was here. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thank God for that. But I I hate that though, too, because I think worry, um, assume that black folks were then put to work in taking care of the white folks or, you know, like. Picking up their dead bodies, doing the gross work. Let's almost be real. guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. So, again, I don't know everything. I've read a book and I've I've done some googling. I'm not the um, yellow expert. fever expert here, but I just, um, you know, especially after my dad died, I was never interested in yellow fever. And then my dad died of COVID, and I'm like, this is exactly the same thing. Right. I mean, I it's not, but it is. And I see so many similarities. I see when I'm out at the cemetery cleaning stones, I see entire families decimated and they all have that same number, 1878. And it just freaks me out. And I'm like, this is the same thing's happening now. Yeah. Yeah, And just imagine if yellow fever was contagious, you know, if it was transferred as easily as coronavirus. I mean, Shit, we we might not be here right now. Right, oh, 100%. I mean, especially a disease yeah. that makes you just basically blood and vomit all over the place. I mean, yeah. there's no controlling that. No, not at all. No. Yeah. Okay, Hannah, you have clowns. I have clowns, which is terrifying Yay! as well. <laughs> I have yes. clowns and serial killers. So strap in, oh, fuckers. Heck yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, strap in. All right, so. Um, as we kind of talked about in the first episode, even though we're all originally from the Memphis area, um, I absconded, I seceded, and I moved to Chicago last year. Um, so a lot of my stuff's going to be very Chicago history um, in that that um, that range. So Chicago has a long storied history with the circus and with sideshow performances. During the World Columbian Exposition, performers from all over the world descended on Chicago. The World Columbian Exposition of 1893 is also known as the World's Fair. Um, Another serial killer connection, the first American serial killer, Mr. Henry Howard Holmes, or Herman Webster Mudgett, whatever you want to call him, was uh, <laughs> building his murder castle. I have yet to go to the site of it. Apparently, it's a post office, but I'm going to go there one day. Just not while it's a foot of snow outside. <clears throat> <laughs> so performers from all over the world descended on Chicago, including some of the nation's first exposure to clowns and other variety artists. Clowns most likely came out of the miming tradition, which started in France and Europe. And so during this Columbian exposition where, you know, all over the world, they're setting up displays as clowns and other kind of variety artists. So 
Variety Artists, if you're not familiar with that, is your standard kind of sideshow performances. You're swallowing knives, your acrobats, your um, je- jesters, your just entertainers that aren't necessarily singers and dancers. Those are variety artists. Um, the Buffalo Bill Wild West show also had a strong presence, which really set up Chicago as a hub for entertainment. Moving into the 20th century, Chicago had a bunch of vaudeville theaters and performers and several circus training schools still operate in the city today. Um, I am obsessed with vaudeville. Um, I don't understand why everyone gets in their feelings about Victorian stuff when vaudeville is right there. You could wear a headdress, you could wear a cute little onesie, and you could also do a burlesque show. I don't understand why it's not more popular, but that's just that's my personal uh, soapbox. I would, my dream is to agreed, go to a agreed. Legit, my dream is to go to a legit vaudeville show. I like, I want to so bad, and hopefully, once we um, come out of this current pandemic horseshit that we're in. There will be more opportunities for that. Um, Chicago artists also revolutionized sideshow banners and artwork. So like the um, artwork that you would see on the boxes of the cookies, that was a Chicago artist. Um, One artist was dubbed the Picasso of sideshow banners. Um, So some of the classic art that you associate with circus trains, like those um, animal crackers boxes, those were made by Chicago artists. Chicago, unfortunately, has a long storied history with death as well. So set the scene, Sicily. (laughs) 1918. (laughs) So in the early morning hours of June 1918, a train carrying about 400 performers employed by the Hagenbach Wallace Circus was on its way to a performance in Hammond, Indiana, which is maybe with today's interstate system, you're looking at maybe a two or three hour drive out of Chicago. So not terribly far. The train had stopped near, okay, we're about to get into some train terms that I'm not 100% on. So just don't at her folks. Don't at me. (laughs) I don't know. I know Thomas the train and that's it. (laughs) So (laughs) the train had stopped on a crossroad. We're near Ivanhoe, which is also in Indiana and also my drag name um, (laughs) to cool down an overheated wheel bearing box, which is a thing on a train. Tragically, even though the conductor and the brakeman had initiated the necessary signals, which at this time was like lanterns and and flags and, I don't know, probably a pigeon, an empty troop train, which, remember, this is 1918, so we're in World War I, um, so they are taking troops back and forth to uh, deployment locations via train. So this empty troop train crashed into the parked circus train. Now, that's why I mentioned that they had done all the necessary signals to be stopped at this particular part of the track. So the troop train should have seen the other train. The troop train was piloted by a conductor who had previously been fired for falling asleep at the wheel. Because that's what you want from a train conductor. Three passenger trains Absolutely. were just, I mean, I love it when somebody in charge of a several thousand ton vehicle is just taking a snooze. <laughs> Three passenger cars were destroyed before the errant train finally stopped. Fires broke out and many were trapped under the rubble, unable to escape the flames. Now, remember, this is 1918 trains. Everything is wood. 
everything is wood and fire because we had not figured out that maybe having those two things close together is not a great idea. Um, so this is in 1918 in the traveling amusement industry. So many victims' names were unknown or they were only known by their performance names. In total, 86 people died. Many were roustabouts, which is an old word for an unskilled day laborer who had just been hired days before at the circus's last stop. Um, and again, early 19th century, unskilled day laborers, they were just the less dead, you know, in this situation. And again, some were only known by their performance name. So there are some who went by Baldy, some they were the carriage driver. So that's what they're known as. Um, as, as fate would have it, just a year before, the Showman's, Showman's League of America, which is still based in Chicago, had purchased a plot for its performers in the Woodlawn Cemetery in the Forest Park neighborhood, um, which is now the kind of southwest suburbs. The league moved quickly to inter the performers at the plot, and a large ceremony was held in their honor. There's two giant statues of elephants kind of in a kind of a trunk down kind of repose as a show of respect, um, which I'm told is beautiful and I cannot wait to see it. Um, Throughout the years, many circus performers have chosen to be buried at Showman's Rest. So if you are part of the Showman's League of America, you can be, you can choose to have a plot uh, at Showman's Rest along with the, um, the mass grave of the people who died in the Hogabach Wallace crash. However, Chicago's, history of tragic clown encounters which is going to be the name of my memoir would reach another milestone 60 years later in 1978 when the crawl space under john wayne gacy's home was excavated to reveal the you had to bring him into this oh i told you you. i you couldn't clowns Clowns, mass graves, and Chicago were doing Gacy. So the corpses of more than 30 young men, Gacy had lured these men into his home with the promises of work, drugs, porn, or booze. So this is a Hannah soapbox where a lot of people like to tell the fiction that Gacy was luring little boys to his home dressed as a clown. Um, this is going to feel like a weird hill to die on, but there is a difference between pedophiles who like little boys. And there's a difference between pedophiles who like teenage boys. It seems like a weird difference, but it's a difference. I just, I like things to be accurate. And also again, he wasn't luring teenage boys with a clown costume. He was luring them with drugs. He was, he, um, in the case of Rob Peace, his last victim, he said, I have a job for you. Um, a lot of them were, they needed a place to stay. This was in the late seventies. There was a lot of, you know, as we discussed, there are un, unwatched young men just out there just getting into trouble. Um, and sometimes that trouble led them to John Wayne Gacy. He would also impersonate a police officer to trap some of his victims. His police officer alter ego was named Jack Handley. Um, his most famous alter ego, of course, is that of Pogo the Clown. Gacy loved a theme party, and while he would claim to have performed at children's hospitals, it's most likely he just dressed up for the amusement of his neighbors and guests. Um, He did Revolutionary War theme parties. The man liked a theme party. Um, 
You know, and he's done a lot wrong in his life, but I can't fault him for liking a theme party. <laughs> I'll give him that. He gets that. Um, fun fact, Gacy and me, uh, Gacy was born on March 17th. I was born on March 18th. Gacy was the same age as I currently am, and he was arrested for murder. So what have I done with my life? Certainly not kill 33 boys. Thank There's- God. There's still yeah, time. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> um, yeah, please don't, Hannah. I, I refuse to yes, podcast yes. with anyone who, who is a murderer. We know I don't murder. I talk no. about it. So Chicago and clowns is still a really interesting situation and in that clown scares still crop up occasionally in the city. Um, there's a really fantastic documentary called Killer Legends um, that has a whole section on clowns and Americans and especially Chicago being really weird about clowns. Um, Bozo the Clown, which is a generation before ours, um, was filmed at WGN Studios here in Chicago. And apparently the set is haunted. So <gasps> you're kidding me. I'm not I grew kidding. up watching Bozo. Yes. I've I was seen obsessed some Bozo. with Bozo. <laughs> oh, yes. Yep. Um, one of my favorite pictures of Billy Corgan is him cuddling with Bozo. What? And I don't know what that <laughs> says about me as a person, but there we are. Can you send uh, it to me? I've never seen this. Yes, I will absolutely send it to you. Hang on. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. She's going to do it right now. Hang on. Complete hang your on. story. <laughs> okay. Um, so clown sightings still occasionally crop up. In the early 90s, there was a rash of menacing clown sightings. Um, the Killer Legends documentary um, links that to the popularity of the Homie the Clown character on um, In Living Color, but it doesn't really explain why it was a Chicago-centric thing. So I think the more I learn about the city, the more we're just fucking weird. Um, <laughs> and in 2016, a year that couldn't get any weirder, no matter how hard it tried, more clowns were traipsing around the city, and even a few were caught in the middle of the night on video waving from graveyards. No. Yes. Nope the fuck right out of there. <laughs> I hate, I I don't want to say I hate clowns because I have covered, back in my reporter days, I used to cover the circus when it came to town and all the circus folks were always really nice and very wonderful. And I understand the appeal of clowns. I get it, but they terrify me. And so I'm kind of like, who decided they were, who decided they were scary though? Because I think it's universal Col- you know, was it colophobia is totally a thing. Like it is absolutely a thing. Hang on. Oh, I'll tell you what gets me about them. So it's not necessarily just a clown. It's that implied audience participation as an incredibly shy child I'm like do not call on me don't come up to me don't speak to me you don't see me I don't want to get my picture made with you I don't want you to make me a balloon animal go away and entertain that child over there and I'll be entertained from a distance so I've never been that way now as I've gotten older and gone to a lot of um, midnight rocky horror showings I'm into audience participation um so I don't I don't know, I, I, but I still don't, I don't, also, I don't like the um, seeing someone's face messed up. Like, um, right. I literally had a, that is Billy Corgan with Bozo the Clown. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me it was Billy Corgan as a child. That's No, what I was, no, uh, grown ass man, probably our okay. age in yes. that picture. Yeah, easily, will, easily. We will share this on our socials. <laughs> yes, yes, we, yes will. we will. Who, yes, we will. Who uh, are um, interested. <laughs> 
Yes. Um, but I think too, um, what I was going to say too about the whole clown thing, what was it? We're going to have to edit this part out. Uh, oh, it's the being scared of faces. When faces yes. are messed up. I was a teenager, loved, still love Soundgarden, but the, I had a nightmare after watching the Black Hole Sun video. Oh God, right. that was terrifying. And in, yeah, and I had a nightmare of people's faces like melting the way they do in the video. Right. And ever since then, I've never liked a lot of face paint or a lot of something where you, someone's face is obscured. It, it freaks me out. So I wonder if that's some, when people say they're afraid of clowns, if that is part right. of their And there's too. something very intrinsic in humans of recognizing faces. That's why yeah. the phenomenon, I believe it's called periodola, where we see faces and things that don't have faces because we see Jesus in toast. Right. Evolutionarily mm-hmm. speaking, seeing faces was what helped us survive because we survived because right. we were social creatures. Right. So that also talks about the uncanny valley where if something looks human, but there's something just slightly off, mm-hmm. there's something in our lizard brain that goes, uh-uh, uh-uh, yeah. Yeah. back away, back away. Right. We don't know evolutionarily why we have that. <laughs> so... <laughs> Sleep tight. Um, yeah. But yeah, that is, it's a thing with us and faces of that's how we, we still have eyebrows because nonverbal communication was such a big thing for us, evolutionarily speaking. Right. Um, most mammals with body hair don't have eyebrows. We do because we used it to communicate to each other in a quiet way, which meant we didn't get eaten by a tiger. So, because they didn't hear us jibber jabbing. So fun facts with Hannah, fun facts with Hannah. (laughs) Um, So there is that element to clowns and it's, it's the origin of clowns was the makeup was so that you could see them from the stands. So Mm -hmm. this is pre big screens. This is pre all of that. So you had to be able to communicate an emotion from the stand. It's sort of like the Japanese puppets that are the same way. It's Mm -hmm. very exaggerated so that you can, you know, the person up in the cheap seats can see what you're doing. Um, And, but close up and outside of that, it's one of those things that in context is no big deal, but out of context, it's like, Ooh, no, no, no. (laughs) So if I, you know, I love circus. I loved the circus as a kid. Um, I, when I was little, we lived in Kansas City, Missouri. The circus came through all the time. My mom always took us. Loved the circus. Had no problem with clowns at the circus. If there's just a clown just roaming around, no. No, you, no, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> We're not doing this. Well, I think I hate that too because it feels like, like as you're saying, the 2016, the right. rise of the clowns that happened. Because they're not in the clown setting, they're not, or I mean, in a circus setting, that to me says, I'm going to get hate for this, I'm sure, but I kind of don't care. I'm a white boy trying to mess you up. I'm trying to scare you. I'm I'm trying to get a reaction from you. And my immediate reaction to that is you're not getting anything out of me. Right. I'm just going to turn around and walk the other way. Like, I hate that attention yeah, grabby, absolutely. Crab. Absolutely. And, that, and 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 there is whether even if they're just meaning to do it as a prank, I think that also means though there's also to me a little bit of threat to it because they right. know it's scary. There yeah. is that kind of imposing your will onto the people around you without their consent. 
Um, which to me, that to me is like, I am cool. I open-minded, open-hearted person. You want to have blue hair, baby girl, rock that blue hair. Um, but for example, during furlough, I worked at Target and a guy came in wearing like a full on like gas mask. And I'm like, homie, come on now. Let's, let's just, and it was for no other reason than shock value, and 100%. as yeah. someone who's into horror, as someone who's into serial killers, there's a way to have interest in these sort of darker parts of life, like we all do, and not try to be an edgelord about it. I am on record right. as being anti-edgelord. Don't at me. Yes. I don't care. Go eat pizza rolls in your mom's basement. I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, and I think that's the thing with, I mean, it's the thing with juggalos though. I, I, I let juggalos be because they're not trying to harm nobody. They just want to wear their silly paint and, um, fucking magnets. How do they work? It's a miracle. So (laughs) I agree with them on that. So, but like I said, Chicago has a really interesting relationship with the variety arts with clowns in specific. Um, and, uh, I can't wait till things open up so I can go see some of the more vaudeville stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I love vaudeville. Uh, just the, the And really, for those of you kind of not familiar with vaudeville, some of the biggest stars of old Hollywood got their start in vaudeville. Mae West got started in vaudeville. Yeah. I love um, her. Ho icon, Mae West. <laughs> um, so it, it was great. And it, it, though there was vaudeville in New York. Um mm-hmm. I think New York and Chicago were pretty much the big ones in uh, the U.S. You can correct me on it. I don't care. Um, But it's just beautiful, and it's just a gorgeous aesthetic. And if you've ever seen the Smashing Pumpkins video Tonight Tonight, that has a very vaudeville aesthetic to it, that kind of old Edwardian period feel to it. Um, That's delightful. So hopefully I'm going to go get to go out and see the mass clown grave. Um, again, when it's not a foot of snow on the ground. Um, and so that is my story, clowns, Chicago and train fires. <laughs> um, I was going to say too, when you started off, I didn't want to interrupt you cause you were on a roll, but, um, <laughs> and, and to prove that I am a true, um, geek nerd granny, I don't know. Um, I am obsessed, unhealthfully obsessed with antiques roadshow on pbs um <laughs> that is my jam so it is on. beautiful for the adhd brain because every five minutes you have a new antique and it's right. a, a new story about something old from history and i'm like yes this is my jam so i, I like i almost have a drinking game down to a t because i'm like okay did they bring in tiffany take a shot did they think it's <laughs> tiffany? If not take two shots like right i have a whole thing like when the appraiser gets sassy and kind of uh gives you some shade for putting that old painting in a more contemporary frame right and you're offended <laughs> take a shot like i I watched Your too much dishes are from Sears, Gladys. They're not Wedgwood. Yes. <laughs> I low-key love that. I low-key like. And I shouldn't say that. That's terrible. Because if I went and took something and they were like, Sheena, you, you clearly got this from Amazon. <laughs> I would die of embarrassment. But. Your grandmama got right. that from a Montgomery Ward catalog in yeah. 1966. Yeah. And I'm very sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it has more of a sentimental value. Like, I love that. <laughs> anyway. They have had um, 
a lot, a lot, a lot of circus art on yeah. a lot of the episodes I've watched. And a lot of them have come from Chicago. So I was yeah. like, yes, I've been seeing that. So yes. I, I love Very that. Cool. The circus posters are really cool and they do They're go for amazing. a lot of money. Yeah. They're amazing. So, it, yeah. And like I said, it's so interesting to see that as uh, like our bedrock of how we picture circuses. Like, cause if you, um, I was planning a baby shower once and we wanted a circus theme and so much of that comes from the early period of circuses, the big top, right. mm-hmm. you know, all of the three ring circus, you know, all of yeah. that is just from that period. Right. Yeah. It's so cool. I like it. Um, well, ladies, are we done? I think so. I this think has been so. great. Um, I think our next episode, the theme is Mississippi mysteries. Is yeah. that is that yeah. correct to, I think, to say? Yeah. Um, I, I know so, I have a Mississippi it's... story ready to go. Um, mm-hmm. Not actually yet. I've not researched it, but <laughs> I know what I'm. You covering. know. You know. Yes. Yes. Same um, here. So. Yeah. So that's going to be the next episode. We're going to um, plan out the next couple of ones. So yet again, if you like what we're doing, hit us up. Please don't be mean to us. We are still new and we're still learning. <laughs> um, Lori, what are all of our social channels and email? You can, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at C- Cemetery Row Pod. Um, and you can send us an email to cemeteryrowpod at gmail.com. And as Sheena said, please be nice. We're, we're, yeah. we're, we're learning here. We're learning. Yeah, we're, we're baby podcasters. So. Yes. And yes. if you have ideas, um, if you have cool graves, yes. if you want to share any of mm-hmm. that, by all means, we love it. Yeah, especially Absolutely. if you, um, not to completely rip off My Favorite Murder, which I'm sure we're going to get accused of. Oh, it's just My Favorite Murder, but with grace. It's um, women talking, so we're clearly all the same. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. Um, um, I would love to hear about, yeah, hometown graves, like the 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 one cemetery that creeps you out, the one cemetery where all of mm-hmm. your family's buried and or or the one cemetery that there's someone buried there with this incredible monument, like um bonus points if you can tell me who um sculpted it because a lot of the older ones will have the sculptor sculptor's name that's one thing I actually want to get into at some point is um researching sculptors who did a lot of cool monuments I'm so Mm -hmm. geeky this is why I'm going to be single for the rest of my life so (laughs) um thanks for tuning in thanks guys bye so yeah we'll see you next week